His book, Adventures Among Ants, a global safari with a cast of trillions, is just a fabulous read. And he has a new documentary coming out on National Geographic Channel on pay TV at the end of the month. Dr. Mark Moffat, I'm so excited to welcome you to Afternoons. Thank you so much for talking to us. Where are you at the moment? Are you investigating any new species or having a bit of a rest? Well, I'm in the middle of New York City, where there are probably are new species, but probably more obscure things than ants are flitting around this city. I don't know if I really want to go outside and look for new species here, but I'm going to Honduras in a couple of days. Hope to track down a few, uh, few creatures indeed. Why are you so interested in ants? They're full of stories that I like to tell, and I like to find stories that surprise people. And people hear too much about lions, tigers, and bears, not about all the little creatures that actually run the world. <laughs> they, they run the world. They do outnumber us. I, I remember you reading, but it's, it's quite, by quite a lot. Well, you know, they actually weigh as much as humans. They're just a million to one. A million to one. And they, and they rule the world. How, how does that work? Well, you know, they actually control the Earth's surface uh, under our feet all the time and over our heads. Uh, the great diversity of ants uh, on Earth is probably most prominent in the canopies, including Australia, but the, uh, Amazon, the Amazon has been called one giant anthill by early explorers, and there, are just, uh, there can be a hundred species in a single tree, all warring up there and controlling space, just like, uh, uh, it looks like a map of Europe if you actually go out there and scout out uh, all the species and all their territories, but in three dimensions, and they're fighting constantly and controlling everything, it's, um, and they're moving nutrients around, pollinating plants and moving seeds that uh, need to find places to germinate. They do a lot of the basic functions of ecology. So it's not just underneath our feet there's this seething mass of insects. It's over our heads all around us. It's a little bit unnerving. Oh, uh, well, you know, you have your green tree ants up in uh, Cape Town and, uh, you know, you, you visit up there and the average uh, person living up there will say, hey, have you tried one and eat one? So they can be tasty at times. You know, you can get a little bit payback with ants, but mostly they've been seen as problems at picnics. And the truth is that they're actually doing all this work for us unseen, and they're showing all kinds of fascinating social behaviors that are very complicated and often like human social behaviors in surprising ways. In what way? The truth is we often compare ourselves to chimpanzees because the chimpanzee is our closest relative, but in fact, we are much closer in most ways to, to many kinds of ants than we are to the primates. So that's because only ants and humans live in societies, modern humans at least, in societies of millions. And only ants and humans have to deal with public waste issues, infrastructure and highways, traffic rules, market economies. Ants do all kinds of things, even some voting at times. The way you describe them, they sound like fairly nasty pieces of work, I have to say, <laughs> well, warring. <laughs> yes, well, this is the truth. Uh, only ants and humans, modern humans, have societies in the millions. And really, if you have small societies, you don't have warfare. Chimpanzees don't have warfare. They'll, have, they'll go into adjacent troops and kill an individual, but all-out mass against mass warfare arises even in human history uh, only when the invention of agriculture allowed us to live in huge groups. And similarly, in ants, you have to have hundreds of thousands or millions of individuals, and you start having this immense capacity to fight each other. It's an unfortunate byproduct of just having all this excess labor around that we can throw at uh, other societies. It's one of the lessons from the ants. It seems to be a property that emerges when groups get big. We have to figure out how to circumvent the problem. The ants just love to fight.
And it, and it, that's just a product of how many they there are. Do they have any? Um, I mean, are, are they? Do they fight other species, or do they fight amongst themselves, or do they do they turn their rage towards people? <laughs> how do they work? Well, it? They, you know, uh, the, the larger the society, the more they tend to uh, be overtly aggressive. There's a, this is a general trend. And they will, in fact, fight other species as if they were their own competitor species, uh, others of their kind. And so the green tree ant in uh, Cape Town is probably the most, and uh, Queensland generally, actually, is probably the most widely known in Australia of these aggressive ants, controlling huge areas, fighting all the time. They have very uh, organized warfare and control of space. It's all about territory. In both ants and humans, aggression arises when space runs low. We're talking on Afternoons. If you've just joined us, my guest is Dr. Mark Moffat. He is the leading international expert on ants. How, how do ants vote? You mentioned they vote. Well, this is a, a fascinating thing that's been uncovered in the last few years. It happens in a moment of crisis, and this is similarly in honeybees. Uh, both ants and honeybees, the crisis is, oh, maybe there's a huge storm and suddenly your, your whole home is, uh, is flooded out. And very quickly you have to figure out the best place to move to. And the ants all go out in different directions and check out different possible dwelling spots. And they check them for size, shape, dryness, uh, amount of light, the whole thing, you know, just like humans checking out a house. And they come back and uh, they try to recruit others to come out and check out their spot. And the ants all start cross-checking each other's site, and they uh, have what's called a quorum. As soon as a, a minimum number of ants arrives at the same spot, it's considered a vote, and the whole colony quickly and suddenly moves there. They don't wait for the complete tally. That would take too long. It's a moment of danger, but it does involve a kind of knowledge of uh, numbers or relative numbers. Ants uh, seem to actually get pretty close to counting uh, when they do a number of things. You mentioned market economies. that uh, They sound incredibly clever. Well, you know, it doesn't take uh, a lot of brilliance for some of these things to arise. Uh, the ants individually are kind of dumb, but there are a lot of them, and they all have a little bit of information. And it's kind of the wisdom of the crowds idea. You get enough individuals together with each a little bit of information, and you can, as a group, start making smarter choices. So the colony as a whole functions very smartly, uh, and makes the right choices about the best food at the best distances and the best, best uh, places and ways to attack the enemy and so forth. Whereas no ant, no single ant really knows what's going on. This is the difference between ants and humans. Ants don't need leaders. I don't know what it's like over there in, in New York, but here in Western Australia we get quite dry and there's just ant hills popping up everywhere. It feels like they're taking over. Is, is, is this a real fear? Are we going to be consumed? Well, yes, and you do have the, uh, the bulldog ants over there, or bull ants as some people call them, the, the ones that leap and sting. Uh, oh, they're horrible. National, I did a whole National Geographic story on them. They are indeed horrible, uh, but they're, they're amazing. They're very wasp-like, and they can actually see very well. And the, the one ant in the world that surprises me most is when I'm walking in a Citroën, and a, a big bulldog ant looks at me, turns and watches me, and then starts running after me. <laughs> then I know I, it's time to get out of Dodge, as we say in uh, the U.S. You've been all over the world on this, um, this uh, as described, Indiana Jones ant quest. Where has the most interesting ants in your experience? Well, you know, it's uh, definitely the tropics, and uh, 
And it all depends what you're looking for. There are lots of slavery ants in uh, North America. There's the driver ants of Africa that can dice up uh, a large vertebrate. Even a cow, if you tie it up, uh, can be killed by them. Uh, there's the leafcutter ants, and they're perhaps the most complicated in a way just because they're actually agricultural. They don't eat leaves. You see them in documentaries about South America carrying the leaves along, but they don't like to eat leaves. They chop the leaves up and turn them into mulch, and the mulch is what they use to grow their fungus. And they're actually, actually domesticated fungus that the ants use. They control its genetics just like we control the genetics of a Macintosh apple or whatever strain of uh, corn or whatever we prefer. And they uh, tightly regulate their food. They even apply pesticides to it. They do everything a farmer does. They're astonishing, astonishing little creatures, things that are so small. Now, you've branched out. Tell us a bit about the National Geographic documentary where you go in search of fig wasps and midges. (laughs) Gillian, the National Geographic uh, is my opportunity as a scientist to return to my roots, the things that I loved as a child. And so I I propose various things to them that I... uh, I I was fascinated by when I was six, and one of them was pollination, the fact that plants and animals are linked together, and it's the best things in life. You know, pollination is basically food and sex, plant sex, but still sex. (laughs) And uh, the chance with National Geographic is is to surprise people, show people what they don't see elsewhere. And so we went after a gecko that pollinates flowers and Mauritius, uh, lemurs, all kinds of creatures, but a couple of my favorites are the smallest ones. In fact, uh, I went out after a little tiny midge or fly. turns out to pollinate cacao or chocolate. Chocolate depends on a minute little brainless little fly. It's hard to imagine all that wonder from such a lowly source of, uh, of energy, that little fly that just flits around hardly big enough to see. And you've even written a um, a children's book, which um, is your your journey to find the world's largest and the smallest and the most deadly frogs. And I love that uh, Stephen Colbert, the American satirist, said that he w- he would love to appear in one of your books. This must have been a highlight. Uh, well, you know, I'm I'm navigating with him. We're going to work out a big contract, and maybe he'll appear on my show when I get one. But uh, you know, he's a he's a fun guy, always looking for a fun story, and the. He, he has his own quirky ways of telling stories. I think it's all about stories, whether you're T- Stephen Colbert talking to a politician or, or me talking about ants, telling a story that makes people fascinated with the unexpected. And uh, I like to do it with creatures that people don't even normally think about. That's my challenge. It's a wonderful challenge as well, and, and I have never been so fascinated by ants. Thank you so much for your time. My pleasure, Julian.